I was a good person, but I belonged to a unit that was doing indiscriminate killing, totally immoral activities. If somebody moved, shoot it. I just felt I'd been part of a war crime. I didn't know how to live with it. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country. We were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was, in effect, to put your life on the line. Welcome to our first episode of Season 7. Our first veteran conversation of the year is with John White. John was an officer in the Australian Army during the Vietnam War. He was decorated for outstanding gallantry in the 1968 Battle of Noc Tavak in South Vietnam. I spoke with John at Gaythorn RSL in Brisbane. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. John, where were you born? When? When and where? Uh, 25th of November 1941, which I'll point out as the first half of the last century, and uh, born in Brisbane. A wartime baby. What was it like growing up in the aftermath of the Second World War? Well, my father uh, came back with PTSD. They didn't call it that then. But we lived on a farm isolated from the world up near Laidley, which is about an hour out of Brisbane. We were very poor. Uh, he tried farming, he tried everything, but it didn't work. An uncle of mine who thought I had talent uh, sort of paid for me to go to boarding school at Southport, where I was a boarder for 10 years. And so that automatically led on to what I'm going to do when I grow up. In those days, to go to university, you had to uh, pay your own way. And I was reasonably intelligent, but I didn't have any money. My father didn't have any money. So the next best thing was to go into the army because we had been World War I and World War II army family and so it just seemed like a natural thing to do to get it done true. Picking up on what you said there about the first half of the last century, Australia was defined in many ways by its experiences in both those wars. Yep. Which, uh, what family relations served in those conflicts of yours? I had to, uh, half a dozen uncles um, cross the family in World War I, a couple of them killed. Uh, World War Two. I think all my uncles were uh, in the military, one was in the Air Force. My father was in the infantry, served in the Middle East. We had a fairly strong military connection. And I'll point out the ones that got killed were always the good ones because they'd have photos of the ones who were killed and always be talking about what a great fellow he was, and they never said that about the ones who didn't go. Is that a, everyone's a top bloke after death kind after of? After death, yeah. So you see the military as a good path forward as what else am I going to do? That's a sort of fair. Yep. And you choose to attend the Royal Military College, Duntroon. What appealed to you about being an officer as opposed to joining as a regular digger? It never occurred to me to be a regular digger. My family came from, it sounds very snobbish, but it's not came from officer class, so to speak. Quite a lot of our, my, my generation went in. My two brothers went into the military and we all just became officers. It just seemed like the natural thing to do. It's what you knew. It's what I knew. And how did you find the experience? Did you have enough worries and stories from the family to have an idea of what to expect or was it a bit of a shock? None whatsoever. It was a major shock in that... Not at any stage during my military career, before I got into combat, did anyone actually warn me what it was like. I always got the sort of red stripe on the blue uniform type glamour aspect of it. So no, I had no idea what it was like. Duntroon, the military college, was easy because I'd been at boarding school for 10 years. So it's just an extenuation of boarding school. Similar culture, different flavour. Bullying. 
bastardization, high expectations, rank structures, just getting you ready for the real world out there. Did you appreciate what you were receiving at the time or is it more in hindsight you see the value of the lessons or do you think bastards a lot of them? How do you reflect on your time at Duntree? In reflection, I formed the best friendships of my life and that even applies today. So I've got probably, probably half a dozen people who are really close to me living all over the world but they're my, they're my friends. And so those are the people I first hang around with at Duntree. It was a team-building exercise of about 50 young men. You survived this great initiation, for lack of a better word, together. Yeah. And the other thing was that most of the kids there, they're all 18 when we were in, most of the kids there also came from an expectation of being an officer. So it was a group of young officer cadets against the system, but everybody else, the system, even the system, was young officer cadets. They just happened to be a year older than you. After you get through Duntroon, you serve for four years as a platoon commander and an instructor at Officer Cadet School after you graduate. Yep. While you're having your early years in the army here, so to speak, Australia becomes officially embroiled in the Vietnam conflict. What were your thoughts as that sort of tension point is brewing and then we see that the nation is at war again? This is where sort of it, it kicks in. I was an instructor at Portsea, which was in Victoria, and the officers and warrant officers who taught there, taught the officer cadets, they had been to Vietnam with the training team and that's the, the group we're about to talk about. When I was mixing with them for two years, I got the sense of adventure. The training team did different things. They were cowboys, really. Before you find yourself with the AATTV, what were your thoughts of us as a country being at war? It really made no difference. Down at Portsea, you're training cadets. A couple of the cadets had been to Vietnam. Most of the staff had been to Vietnam except me. Obviously, I had no medals, no nothing. But I was good at my job. When I started talking to these guys who'd been on the training team, I realised if I was after adventure, this is where it was. Because as a captain in the uh, infantry, to go to a war zone, you become the, the second in command of a company. The second in command does no leadership, no, 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 they look after the administration, the resupply, a lot of the essential things, but not, not glamorous. Whereas the company commander, the major, gets all the fun, or what is supposed to be fun. And if you're a captain on the training team, you get to be a commander. And that's what I was looking for. You wanted that sense of adventure and yep. you recognised that the Australian Army training team, Vietnam, was the place to do that? It was the only place to be at that time. For the listener's benefit, the AATTV was an elite unit of specialists that were sent to Vietnam to provide advice, training and leadership to local soldiers. It's something where, you know, training team doesn't immediately evoke the emotion of all elite at a group of elite soldiers, but you are all highly trained specialists and that's very much what it was. It was, it was a big lie. It was uh, a big lie. Big lie being called the Australian Army Training Team. The main function that I fulfilled was command. So I was given a company of 120 people and I was a commander. It was called a training team for political reasons because that way it didn't look like it was in warfare. We're not fighting, we're advising, just helping. It's more passive than... And that's exactly what it was. Some people did do that, but a lot of other people did what I did. In 1968, you embark on a year-long tour of duty with the AATTV. Yep. I can imagine you were going there with that sense of excitement, adrenaline. Yep. This is the adventure you'd been craving. Well, I arrived about a week after the Tet Offensive, which was, if you know the history, that was massive... Was your brother involved in the Tet Offensive? Yeah, but he was in a different part of Vietnam. So I was right up in the north and he was down in the south. You really felt as if the war was on because I arrived in a plane, got off, was put in a bus with armed guards, driven to a hotel which was surrounded by sandbags and MPs and went in and ran to an American who said, come on, we'll go up, go up on the roof and have a beer. It was about six storeys high. We went up on the roof and we're looking over the edge of the roof and here are these little figures running around the street below 
being chased by APCs, armoured armored vehicles, getting shot. And people are running along behind, stopping, putting a bullet into the person that's down. I, I think, shit, I'm in the war here. <laughs> this is suddenly very I, real. I think I've arrived. Is this your first time overseas? As a soldier? In life? I suppose so, yeah, yeah. So th- that's it. What a change. I mean, you're in a different country, vastly different climate. It's a very foreign feeling as well. You've not gone over to Europe. It's something quite different from home as well. And I suppose all that's put in, that's insignificant compared to the fact that it's a war zone, that reality is, uh, that ugly reality is right there in front of you. Yeah, there were, there were two sort of streams into Vietnam. One was through the, the American system, which included Australia. They sort of came in there, they allocated a, an area. They worked that area. We live worked, the Australians worked in Phuc Thuy province. And that was under American control. It was an American invasion, really. And we had no place in being there, but that's the way it was. One of the problems I had, Alex, is that about two weeks after I was there, I remember writing home to my wife saying, you may think I'm joking, but I'm not, I'm not sure I'm on the right side here. And that made life very difficult because I was good at my job and every time I did something successfully, 18-year-old young men got killed. And not just 18-year-olds on my side, 18-year-olds on the other side, whom I thought had a greater moral right to be there than I did. That's interesting that you formed that opinion. We've spoken with many Vietnam veterans and some, I think, felt that upon reflection or maybe in the latter part of a tour to have made that thought process of yours. You've come to that conclusion so early in the tour. I can't imagine how that, I guess, that would shape your psyche of if you're not believing in what you're doing. That must yeah. be very challenging. Well, that's what happened when we got on this, we get on this battle. So I arrived at Mike Force. And I'm told I'd be working with Montagnards, who are the, the native hill tribesmen, many of whom had a French education at the Catholic schools, so they spoke French. I did a bit of French at school and then brushed up and all the French I could for a few months before I went across there to be told that my troops would be Chinese. So they spoke Cantonese. So I didn't speak any Cantonese. They only spoke English if they wanted to. They spoke Vietnamese. And we had a totally different setup to what I thought it was going to be. And then they gave me two weeks to get ready. I was going to be the John White of Arabia type, got you know, train up the troops and get them ready and do wonderful things. I was given two weeks to get ready because I was going out on a, on a uh, operation. Before we get to the operation, just a little context there. So you were given command of the 11th company of the Mobile Strike Force or Mike Force, and this was a mix of US Special Forces, Australian non-commissioned officers, and local mercenaries. And yes, you didn't get the uh, Montanards. That, that the Nungs. Yes, you got the Nung people who comprised the majority of the company. Did you get to know them and forge some kind of collegiality or bond with them over time, or was that always that cultural divide was just too difficult? Well, the cultural divide was there, and if there's going to be a closing of the gap, it was up to me, not up to anyone else. Did you close the gap, did you feel? I got closer than I thought I would, but there's no way in the world you're going to close the gap with entrenched Chinese-speaking mercenaries. Before we get to the events of May 1968, and we'll come to that, after that two weeks you had to get ready, what was your day-to-day life like in Vietnam? Was it constant patrols, aggressive action? Was there a balance, some training, some patrolling? What was the day-to-day like? None of the above. Please enlighten me. Well, we lived in barracks in Da Nang, which is up north. People came and went. I had no idea what they were doing. I had a Nung commander. His name was Tiger. That's how he referred to himself. And he was, and he was a tough boy. He and I came to an arrangement, which we were going to do anyway, because this is what he thought. But he would look after Nong business. I look after army business. So my job was to say, we're going to attack that hill, we're going to go this way, that way, I'll be this time. I'll call in the air support, I'll call in the artillery. His job is to make sure that the Nongs did what they were told. And, you know, we had a, a really good example of that on about the first week I was out at Noctavak. I was on the first week out to Noctavak. I thought, I've got to show these people I know what I'm talking about. I can't just sit in a, a bit of a base here. You don't want to be a headquarters captain. You want to be seen as a bit more of a... I have to be there in, in the field with them. Yes. Yeah. So I got hold of Tiger, the head Nong, 
a medic, American Special Forces, and an American uh, communications guy and about six bodyguards. And we went off on a patrol down south where we knew the enemy were just to see how far we could go before we got hit. We'd been out about two days just skirting around and there's a bit of a ruckus behind me and here's Tiger berating a Nung who's groaning and carrying on or whatever. And the interpreter told me that he was a drug addict and he'd run out of drugs and that Tiger was telling him that he had specifically said no one with any drug problems will come on this exercise, the whole operation. He explained to me that if we try to go back, we'll have to carry this fellow. He's going to groan and moan and carry on. If he does that, he'll give us away and we'll probably all get killed. So let me deal with this. Didn't ask me, just told me, let me deal with this. Went over to this guy, took his rifle, took all the rounds out of the rifle, gave him one round and the rifle, told him he can keep all his food, he can keep whatever he likes. If he follows us, he will be shot by us. Or would he prefer that Tiger shot him now? He said, no, 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 don't shoot me. So we left him there. There's no way in the world he could have survived. So, yeah, that gives you some idea of the separation between Nung business and army business. I suppose it's also a reflection of the stakes. You can't afford a liability like that because, as you say, if he moans and groans, that puts all of the company in great danger. There's no disagreement from the other people who were there. I was, I was the most shocked one. It was totally outside any normalcy that I'd ever established in anything in my life. You're in another world now. Yep. So I had two weeks to get ready to go out to Noctuvuk. We left and got to this base on a hill, which is – Noctuvuk was a big mountain over to one side. I called this Noctuvuk because it was the easiest word to pronounce. It was an old French fort built by the French – about 1946, built like one of those forts that you'd actually see in the desert or some French Foreign Legion, you know, with walls that go up the side and, and it was all overgrown. I thought, this is a great spot. We'll hold, we'll hold out here. Great cover, solid yeah, structure. Everything. And uh, water was nearby. And if the enemy get too close or when they start to threaten us, we'll just pack up and disappear. How clever. And that was my plan. So away we went. What no one told me was that we had 200 men 222 to be exactly, and the enemy had somewhere between five and 8,000. It was the 2nd NVA Division, 2nd North Vietnamese Army Division, advancing up the road that we were sitting astride. And our job was to keep tabs on them and see how far. So we got to a stage where we couldn't go more than a couple of hundred metres without getting shot at. So at this stage, this is when I said to the, my, my commander, time for us to leave. He said, no, 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 I want you to stay there. I thought, well, they've got a big plan here and I don't know what it is, but... You're trusting in the chain of command and that there's a... Total trust. You've got five to 8,000 North Vietnamese Army troops. You've had a few light skirmishes. And not only that, but these weren't your irregular guerrillas. These were battle-hardened North Vietnamese who have just been through the Tet Offensive. They knew what they were doing. They were practice. tough boys, yeah. And... You've got this small Noctovac base. You're, there's a special forces base further back at Kamduk, which yep. your base is kind of in the middle of. You're the vanguard. You're a sort of forward. We were the, we were the forward, forward operational base. Forward operational base and a forward defensive position. And, yes, 5,000 Let's on the lower end, 8,000 on the upper end versus your – Thank you, Pig. Couple of, like, yeah, exactly, versus your couple of hundred. It's a little bit um, – Battle of Thermopylae, going back from yeah. ancient Greek law there, and you make the very wise call to ask to retreat, and you're told no. Did you feel your heart sink, or did you just have no, to... No, at that stage, they said no, and then when I got a bit pushy about it, they said no, stop pushing, reinforcements are coming. And I thought, that'll be interesting. Where will they come into, and how will they and fit how, here? And how many? Yeah, how will they fit here? They did come in the shape of, you're going to laugh at this, but it's true, 40 US Marines in artillery with their guns. But the guns couldn't fire because we were in jungle, couldn't shoot through the canopy. The Marines had never been in the bush before, so they didn't know anything about jungle warfare. I didn't allow any Marines to go outside the perimeter. They arrived, so I accommodated them. I was talking to Da Nang, my headquarters, fairly frequently. 
And I said, this isn't working. This isn't going to work. You know, we've got to get out of here. We'll send you more reinforcements. So the, the key was they sent me about 35 CIDG, civilian, the regular defence group who were militia, badly trained, not even trained. They sent those out to me and said, yeah, this will help. So at this stage we've got about 30 Vietnamese-speaking really low-quality soldiers, about 40 US Marines who can't speak the language and really just in a, in a blob on the fort looking after themselves while I try to get everybody out of here. Then we've got the American Special Forces who are very, very competent people. Then you've got three Australians. The sort of poorly thought-out reinforcements that you got, it sounds like a comedy farce skit. It does. It's also, in a weird way, and sadly, classic army as well, a sort of disengagement with the reality of the battle space and what is practical and required and what someone like you know that you need versus some decisions made higher up, oh, let's send this here. It's a total mismatch for the requirements. Well, if it had been, and I'm not sort of dumping on the Americans here, but if it had been an Australian unit, the commanding officer would have said to the unit commander, what do you need? How can I help you? What's your plan? The guy that was giving me instructions was 100 kilometres away in Da Nang, looking at a map and telling me not to retreat. After about a day of this, I realised that we were stuffed. Every time I asked who were the reinforcements, when were they coming, I get a different answer. But I said to all my troops, at this stage, this is the first day of, of the attack. They attacked at about 3 o'clock in the morning, which is a great time to do it. We knew they were coming because we could hear it. Didn't know where they're going to come from. But what we didn't realise is the CIDG, the militia, had switched sides. And so they came to the a bit of a break where we had two 50-cal machine guns, you know, sort of well defended. And they said, don't shoot, don't shoot, CIDG, friendly, friendly. And the Marines who didn't know the difference let them through, with which they threw hand grenades and satchel charges and things. And they got into the fort and took over about two-thirds of the fort. And this is where I was thankful for the Marines because they didn't know what to do, so they just clustered in a, in a heap and set up a fire base and shot anything that moved, probably some of the Norms as well. So that's how they got in. Talk me through the rest of the battle, John. Okay, well, it toed and froed for a while. Luckily, I, I'm fairly creative in, in my soldiering and I knew that we were in trouble, so I got the Nung commanders, Tiger and his commanders, the interpreters, as many people, the Americans, he gave them a briefing saying, and I was aiming it at the Norms because they don't kill their officers as modern yards sometimes do, but they do leave you alone. Like, you know, you, you're there and you think you're surrounded by your troops, but they've all gone. I didn't want them doing that. There was nowhere to go to anyway. So I got everyone together through their command structure. I said to the Norms, I know you are valiant warriors. They, they really have a good reputation of, of being loyal if they were well led. I know you're valiant warriors and therefore you will not run away. What we're going to do is bring in a new approach. 20 seconds, 30 seconds after the first shooting you hear, anyone above ground is to be shot. If you think they're an American or another Nong or whatever, or it's me, don't worry about it, shoot them. And so I'm sure a few people got shot who tried to run away. But that kept them in their pits. That kept some stability. And we held out till dawn. And where we were was up in the highlands, very, you know, probably a couple of thousand metres up. Every morning was in heavy fog. And about 10 o'clock it had burned off and gone. And on this morning there was no fog. And I had all these planes stack up above me in case there was no fog. And as soon as they were able to, in they came. And we had <laughs> phantoms dropping two 50-pound bombs you know, within 30 or 40 metres of you. These guys could see the enemy on the ground, so I didn't even have to give them fire control. We had gunships, Spooky, which is a DC-3 with a side cut out of it with Gatlings. We had all these things in it. It literally hosed down the area, and so it came to a standstill. And one of the warrant officers, a fellow called Don Cameron, could see that he and his people were stuck because they were in one part which threw up the force. Our people were stuck because we couldn't move, we were over, overwhelmed. So he did what he, the only thing he could do was to counterattack. So he was calling out in English and getting the interpreter called out in Chinese. Come on, guys, let's go attack, attack, attack. And he attacked <laughs> and he was on his own. 
So he's boldly leading this charge. Yeah, he was leading the charge. I mean, it's a heroic thing. To, and he got a good medal. But he's leading the charge. The Nongs got so embarrassed. And they said this later, we were so embarrassed about you know, Cameron attacking Elaine who got up and joined him. <laughs> so we, we drove the North Vietnamese off the hill that we had been occupying, but not off the hill itself. So, yeah, about halfway down the hill, it still had some vegetation. But he cleared the fort, at least? He cleared the fort. And then we started cleaning up. We ended up with about 70 of my people killed, another 70 wounded to the point of needing evacuation. We had 45 of the original people who went in walking out, but we had to get out of there. So Don Cameron clears the fort of the enemy. You've had around 70 people killed, around 70 wounded. You've been continuous shooting for nine hours and you've got this need to get all the wounded out But because there's always a fresh contact or round or bout. There's always more wounded to evacuate. We couldn't do anything while there was wounded. And my moral structure is that there's no way in the world I would leave the wounded behind. So if we can't get the wounded out, we have to stay. If we have to stay, we're all going to get killed. So get the wounded out and see what happens. Every time the medevac chopper came in, the shooting would die down. He would come in sideways on, the, on one of those berms and we'd literally throw the, throw the wounded in. As soon as the chopper pulled away and went back to drop off the wounded, uh, the shooting was starting in rockets, heavy machine gun, light machine gun, mortars. Then the chopper would come back for more wounded and we'd normally get about seven or eight wounded on each chopper road. And the chopper pilot tells me he took, he, he keep count, he took out 73. The one thing I, I did really want to happen in my life as a result of, of that incident with the, the Medivac choppers was to meet the enemy commander who gave the order not to shoot down the helicopters. Honourable is the way that sticks with me. It's just, I don't know if I would have done it myself. I like to think of myself as an honourable man. We'll come to that in a minute, but not this. Anyway, we got the wounded out and I got on the radio again to headquarters and said, we're moving out. And they gave me a message that the colonel came onto the phone, which he normally doesn't do. And he said, you're not to move out. That's an order. You've got reinforcements coming. I said, you've got until one o'clock for them to be here or we're moving out. At one o'clock, I rang up again and said, we're moving out. He said, you'll stay there. That's an order. <laughs> I gave the telephone to my communications guy and I said, right, guys, saddle up, we're out of here. Otherwise he's just ordering you to die. Yeah, but no, not only that, he was lying because there weren't, I checked later, there were no reinforcements. It was his goal to buy more time for their base? Yes, yeah. buy more time for Camdook. He wasn't at Camdook, he was back in Da Nang. So this is a guy running the battle from a map. The place was a mess. We had about 100 bodies 70 wounded, and I was trying to sort this out in my mind. Tiger came over and said, we have a problem. And I remember saying to him, well, that's just what I need, a problem. So what's new today? Yeah, Another yeah. problem, sure. I went with him and he stood somebody stood on the rim there and pointed at the two Americans and said, we're going to shoot them. I said, no, you're not. He said, yes, we are. This is Nong business. I said, this is not Nong business. This is my business. You shoot them, they'll shoot back. We'll all wipe each other out and we'll all die. So you won't do that. And I'll sort this out when we get back to Danang. So we got that sorted. Why, so why did they want to shoot the Americans? Had they the Americans had shot two of their people. Accidentally during the battle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they knew that two of their fellows got shot. Uh, they knew where the shot had come from. And when the battle quietened down a bit, they went over to have a look who was there. But the two people who got shot weren't killed. So that gave me a bit of room. But the other thing was that another... Norm came in and said, we've got prisoners. Now, in the area where we work, we didn't take prisoners. And I didn't agree with that, but I'd never had the necessity not to take prisoners. I said, who are they? He said, they're the CIDG, the ones who changed sides. With which Tiger came over and said, we're going to shoot them. I said, no, you're not. He said, this is Nong business and we're going to shoot them. I said, what do you mean it's Nong business? He said, those people let the enemy into our camp where about 50 of my people got killed. If you obey the rules of law, you are required to put them in a helicopter with the wounded and evacuate them. If you do that, everybody who was on this hill will die except the people who betrayed them and let people in. And he said, I'm not asking you, he didn't use these words, but I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, this is normal business. 
So at this stage, I, I did have a moral dilemma. I could have put myself between the, the prisoners and the Nungs, in which case, they, and I'm not joking here, they probably would have shot me too. They felt this is their business. I was getting in the way. And so I got out of the way, I went somewhere else and they got shot. There are all these dilemmas. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw a white flash and a bandage. And I thought, what the hell's that? And I went over and the, the NVA are always very good. They always took their dead with them and they took their wounded with them. And these were two wounded NVA with bandages on. And I knew they were NVA because we use khaki-coloured bandages. And they use white ones. So they'd been wrapped up ready to get picked up on the way out and someone had missed them. So I went over there and had a look at them. I think Don Cameron asked me what I was going to do about them. I said, well, we're not going to shoot them. I said, and we're not going to put them in a helicopter because they'll probably get tossed out on the way back. So I'm going to give them back. So I got a couple of Marines and we put together little sort of stretches and I waved a white flag. I was looking for a white flag and you can never find a white flag when you need one. So I had a dirty handkerchief nailed there, put it on a stick, <laughs> waved it above the, the balloon and the shooting slowed down, and I stood up, and I guarantee not more than 20 metres away, there's an NBA guy looking at me right down the barrel of his rifle. I thought, oh, what the hell have I done here? You've gone so far, and you've almost... That's right. And I couldn't turn around and run back or anything. So I said to the Marines, bring him out, and the moment we appeared was there, wounded. I left him on the ground out there, and then I turned around, and we all walked back, and a couple of their guys came out of the bush, I think it was four, picked him up and took him away. That was my belief in honourable soldiering because it would have been so much easier to shoot them and I didn't know if I was going to survive that, but I couldn't not have done it. Whereas shooting the, the CIDG was a different matter altogether. It strikes me, John, that you had some great moments of creativity and innovation in this battle and a slew of moral dilemmas there. Did you feel like you couldn't have possibly felt like you trained for all these scenarios, you just had to draw upon guile, instinct, the people around you? Okay, Alex, I've, I've wondered about this for 50 years. I felt no fear. Two days later, I woke up at about 2 o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat. I was terrified. I had the shakes and everything. But during the, the actual battle, I had no fear. The only thing I wanted was I knew I was going to die. I just wanted to get shot through the head or the chest. If someone would just do that for me, please, I'd be happy. So do you think like that resolve of, oh, accepting death, like, oh, I will die here. I will that, die. That, yeah. actually that let me get on with my job. Mm. So I was able to think creatively. And the next issue was how do we get out of here? Well, there's an old airstrip the French used. We couldn't use that because it was ambushed. You could see some of the diggings. And I had a light aircraft fly over it very low. And they couldn't come up the road because that was ambushed. You could see that too. We were grossly outnumbered. We couldn't be flown out by helicopter. Because meanwhile, the chopper pad that we had had been closed because two Chinooks got shot down on it uh, with their crews and, and reinforcements. So I had no idea what to do. And then I came up with a, a, a bold plan, which worked, luckily. If it hadn't worked, you wouldn't be talking. The one thing we did have, which was not negotiable, was air power. And I knew the enemy would be listening in on our radio, so I didn't want to give him away. I would give, give our, our plan away. So I said to the air controller above, I want six phantoms with napalm. And he said, no, you don't want napalm, you want two 50-pound bombs and strafing. I said, no, don't fucking argue. Get me six planes with napalm. And so they knew by this stage that I was fairly reliable. Yeah, I knew what I wanted. So I got them there and I explained to them, I want you to drop your napalm close to the edge of my position and then drop them in line, working your way further and further out. So the second napalm would drop where the first one ended and so on. And I said, so the first one is the most important one, because if you get that wrong, we're, we're fried. So I want your best pilot. I don't know how this guy got through. He'd been listening in. He said, oh, that'll be me. <laughs> I said, whoever it is, they don't care. Yeah, this is it. He came in and he was. He was right on the edge. You would have dropped it around where the top of the stairs is around there. Yep, very, that's pinpoint. And uh, it's what you needed. Exact. I mean, we had no choice. So we dropped, each one was carrying two containers. We dropped a trail of 12 canisters of napalm in a line back through where the enemy had come from. So I knew that I'd, I was, I'd say without any embarrassment, 
I had really well informed, well educated in enemy tactics, which I'd made a point of. I knew how they ambushed and where they ambushed and what they expected. They would have expected us to head for Canbilk. It's the only place we could have gone. So that's where they would have had most of their troops in ambush. So I put the napalm down where they'd actually attack from because all the attacking troops would have come up and gone over the hill. And it worked. We got out of there without shooting one extra shot, got back to Chinooks, came in. We had some shot down chopper pilots with us. They showed us how big an LZ we needed. Found an old native modern yard uh, garden. It was overgrown. We cut a clearing. There were no big trees because it was a garden only had sapling. We all got back to Camdook and from there we all got back to Danang. It's an incredible story, John. What's the immediate aftermath? Are you reprimanded for disobeying the order and evacuating? <laughs> Are you lauded for, thank goodness you ignored that lunacy and you got what you could out and you saved the situation? What, what's the reaction? Okay, well, this is where it gets, gets nasty. I get back there and, and uh, they said, and meanwhile, just on, as an aside, my troops in the field were being badly supplied. To one stage where I flew back to Da Nang and went and confronted the major who was in charge of supply and said, we need boots. He said, all right, all right, you know, so you Australians, you give me the shit sort of thing. Uh, you don't talk to a major like that. And I said, well, give me the boots and I won't. So anyway, when I came back, I was walking up to the headquarters office and he was coming to the debriefing of me. He said, well, you won't need the boots now. And I hit him. That created a dilemma. We'll move on from there. We'll come back to that. Then we got to the, the debriefing. I'm embarrassed because the adrenaline was starting to wear off and I had the shakes a bit. So I said, I need a whiskey. So I had a couple of whiskeys. And well deserved, I might add. I think so. The commander said, how come no Australians were killed or wounded? As if, you know. There weren't many of you. Because that was the badge of honour sort of thing. Anyway, <coughs> um, we debriefed. I told him what I thought. He told me I disobeyed a command. The next morning, the two IC Colonel Smith, two IC Special Forces, came down and he had a citation. Well, they are, you know, really pretty. And it was going to be a medal for me, Distinguished Service Cross, for everything I'd done and getting the troops out and that sort of thing. He said, but you're lucky, John, you're lucky. If you're an American, you'd probably be court-martialed for disobeying a lawful command. And I said, if your CO was an Australian, he'd be court-martialed for incompetence. And so he took the medal with him. <laughs> Never saw that again. Well, I read that, yes, you were downgraded from a higher-level award to mention in dispatches. And please correct this story if I'm wrong, but because your brother, Peter, as we covered earlier that year, he'd been awarded an MC for courage and leadership during the Tet Offensive and some major general thought, oh, we can't give two brothers uh, a military cross or whatever it was. I mean, is that a true story? Yes, yes and no. My CEO did recommend me for a military cross and the two warrant officers both got military medals and VCMs. And McDonald lied had a clash with McDonald. After Dr Vuck, where I'd been lied to, cheated, I lost my military discipline, I think. When McDonald demanded I come out of the bush to meet him for a, a formal session to meet the, the uh, Vietnamese commanders, I said I couldn't do it, I was in contact. And he said, through his ADC or whatever, you will do it, that's an order. And I said, I can't do it, I'm in contact. And McDonald got on the radio and said, White, you will do it, that's an order. So I knew that unless I did it, I'd be shipped out. I got to where I was due to meet him about 12 hours later and he just landed in a Learjet. I came out of the back of a caribou, absolutely covered in grit. It was about two weeks, three weeks after Noctovac. And he looked at and said, you're late. I said, late? Late? I said more than that. I said, fucking late. I said, I'm meant to be in there with my soldiers who are getting shot at, and you demand that I be here to play flunky to you. He said, come with me. And he took me over there about five metres and he said, if you ever speak to me like that again, I'll always court-martial you on the spot. Right, let's start again. So he went back to his plane. And nothing happened out of it. I didn't get reprimanded or anything. But when the thing for an MC came up, and his words basically were, you can't have two brothers from the same family, and both earning an MC, 
downgrade young whites. I think your reaction to him and a bit of, yes, losing that military discipline, as you say, is understandable because you had found yourself in a situation you shouldn't have been in. You, instead of being allowed to withdraw, you were told to stay. You didn't get adequate reinforcements all along the way. Incompetent command. There's sort of no real question of that. The amount of men that survived was, it's a team effort, but a large part of that is thanks to your leadership and clear, strong thinking. I can understand if a bit of resentment has, or bitterness has built over the course of that, that you shouldn't have been in that situation, and yet your calm and gallant leadership saw it through. And you are getting some commendation, but you're also getting some strife, or just an, an interaction like that is just wasteful and borders on the absurd, losing all trace of common sense. What happened is that it left me angry, not, not disappointed or pissed off of the hierarchy, or just angry. And shortly after that episode with McDonald, I went down to where IFRAR, 5th Battalion, was, and a friend of mine was a captain there. I needed some stability, so I went down to visit him. I was going to have a couple of days there and just hang out with Australians. I walked into the mess, which was a, a tent, and there's the CO of that battalion, whom I won't mention, my friend and a number of other people standing around having a cup of coffee. The other guy, oh, John, g'day, how are you? Good. I heard you've been in a bit of strife. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. The CEO of the battalion said, so you've come down here to learn about real soldiering, have you? Wow. And I turned to him and he's in front of me. He's showing off to the people he was with. And I turned around and looked him dead in the eye and said, fuck you. Turned around and walked out the mess. And I was expecting him to call out, come back here or whatever. I got back to Saigon <laughs> And as I walked into my CO's area, there were a few people there whom I knew who giggled and turned the other way and so I knew something was up. Word had spread fast. Yeah, the word had spread. I don't know how it spread. There were enough witnesses there to say, yeah, White's on his way back, mate. He's in big strife. My CO called me into the office, shut the door and said, how would you like to go to Singapore for five days? I think it sounds like you needed that detox to yeah. find your military discipline again. He was—he just read me so totally. He's a great guy. And uh, I went to Singapore and then came back and he reposted me and all the, every other Australian was taken out of that special forces unit and sent to one of play coup. When do you finally leave Vietnam? 69, February 69. This battle happens in May, so you've got many more months. So you've got many more months of experiences do you get to, after a little while, after Singapore, say, do you get to compartmentalise Noctavak or is it this thing hanging over you for the rest of your time in the country? I went about my soldiering, and this is what surprises me, I went about my soldiering very well. I was always aware that if you got into a, a fight, someone's going to get shot and killed. And I didn't want any of those young men because they're all conscripted. You know, they'd rather be back in the, at the farm growing rice. They're all conscripted, but if I did my job really well, I'd kill them. And that didn't sit well with me. And I remember even at Noctavac, right at the very end, there was a, I was standing talking to a couple of American Special Forces guys who'd been flown in as reinforcements. And some young NVA must have been lying low because not far from us, probably about 15, 20 yards, this guy got up, made a dash for it, and headed for the jungle. Now, I'm a good shot. These two guys are good shots. They're just bringing up their weapons to shoot him. I said, let him go. And they said, yeah, well, why? I said, look, just, just let it go. There's been enough killing. I know that I could have done a better job at winning the war, which we didn't, if I hadn't had this feeling of immorality on me. We shouldn't have been there. You don't save a country by bringing in mercenaries, many of whom got paid so much to kill and so much a weapon. That's not liberating a country, that's suppressing it. The Americans ran the country. When the president didn't do what they wanted, the folk called Zim, they put him in an army car, take him somewhere and shot him. They were running the country. There was no, no morality in it. One of the great things in my life, one of the real moments of my life, I got a message from the United States. I had nothing to do with the military. I gave it up, walked away. I had a message from the United States saying some people are going to knocked a buck to see if they can reclaim any of the bodies of the 11 
Americans' bodies we left behind. And this is years later, 1995? This is 25 years later, yeah. Uh, Would you like to come? Pay your own way. And I said, yeah, I'll be there. So I went up there and on the first day we had, on our side we had a couple of interpreters provided by the Vietnamese because they wanted to know what was going on. We had about three people who'd been at Noctrebuck, two Marines and myself. We had the enemy commander, the second in command of the whole war, General Zhu, another guy who was the, who was the uh, I've forgotten his name, he was the commissar would be the nearest word, he was the political gun. And then this other fellow walked into the room. We were all shaking hands and introducing ourselves. And my interpreter said, and this is Major Mai. He's the man in charge of the unit that overran your position. The one who ordered not to shoot down the medevac helicopters. And I stopped and I turned to him. And everybody heard this. And they all turned to look at me. And he was, Mai was about there. I got up, I walked around, I held out my hand, shook his hand and said, you are probably the most honourable man I know. And he said, why is that? And I said, do you order the medevac choppers not to be shot down? He said, we don't shoot down helicopters at a medevac. We got on so well. The next day they put on a couple of Land Rovers, drove us all out to Noctrevac. We spent the night at Noctrevac and then came back and everyone went their own way. As a result of that, the American Army was allowed to go into Noctrevac with a team our forensic scientists collect the bones, including Chinese and Vietnamese and American or whatever. They're after American bones. We're able to find bones through DNA testing, which uh, met all the criteria of being guaranteed from those people. And then in about 2015 or thereabouts. 2005? So well, that's when it was, 2005. Right. So in 2005, yes, those remains of 11 Marines and one US Special Forces soldier killed in action at that battle. So the issue there is that I left their bodies behind. Yes, which we didn't talk about in the execution of the battle, and I know that's a controversial decision, but you described well the napalm had sort of cleared your exit route. Of course, you would have wanted to take the dead with you, but you just couldn't. You just couldn't. You would have more dead as a result of doing that. That's right. So that, that was the uh, Washington, D.C. and Arlington. And I think one of the most difficult, not one of the most difficult speech I ever made, I'm emotional about it now, I had to stand up and face the families and friends of the people who'd been killed. And this was a big deal. There were 250 people there, uncles, aunts, nephews, cousins, people who hadn't even been born. And I had to stand up in front of these people and say, the first question that would be going through my mind if I was you is why is this fellow up here standing up and talking to us? And my son's dead. How did that happen? And so I explained how it happened and they understood it then. I said, first of all, your son is a hero because he had a position, he had to stay in it when every bone in his body said, get the hell out of here. He stayed there and fought on. So he's a hero. The second thing is that by his staying on, it slowed the momentum of the attack. So it allowed us to do a counterattack. The third thing is that if we tried to bring his body home, there'd be other people, and this is the, the survivors, standing along the back wall there, uh, and they wouldn't have got home. So that's why he's not here. That was fine. That got through. I think anyone would respect that messaging and why john well john you come home from war and you are quite i think disillusioned with the army you went to vietnam for the adventure yep and you got more than your share of that to say the least and then i take it you were done with it ready to do something else in life after a while the first thing i did was i i went to uh, malacca i knew i shouldn't get out of the army straight away i just knew it It'd be too much of a rough transition. I wouldn't have been able to handle it and I wouldn't have been acceptable in my behaviour. In the military, I know I had a good reputation, so i do something stupid like telling somebody something. They'd say, oh, that's John White. Leave him. He's fine. He's a good man. So I could get away with it. Not too far. My brigade major was a Brit, one of the bloody salt-of-the-earth fellows, and every now and then he'd say, steady, boy, steady. He did something wonderful for me. 
he sent me to Hong Kong for a one-month PSYOPs course. And on the second night I was there, I was down at the bar, I'd been drinking fairly heavily at this stage, and this Brit came up, started talking to me, and I chatted, and he said, oh, I'm enjoying your company. You want to meet here tomorrow night as well? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So after about three nights, he said, I need to tell you that I'm not who I said I was. I'm a psychiatrist, and your name's been given to me by Dick Gerard Wright. And he said, I have some problems that you may be able to help me with. I may be able to help you. He was a psychiatrist for SAS, based in Hong Kong. Used to work around Malaysia. He just spent time with me and listened to what happened and told me, because I hadn't talked about it with anyone. It was another 20 years after that that I even told my brothers. He said, go back and make friends with your wife. So I went back and... I couldn't speak to her because I felt so unworthy. And uh, I was in Malacca and I had a big house and a big room, a maid, a gardener, all this stuff. And if my wife walked into the room, I felt crowded. I'd have to leave. So she didn't know what she'd done. When you said unworthy, is that because you felt you'd fought on the immoral side of the war? There are so many aspects to it, Alex, but the, the main one is if you imagine this is what I did, I imagined how the Germans behaved when they went through Ukraine and, and uh, into Russia. They just slaughtered everyone. There would be people in that Russian, sorry, in that German army who were good people. They weren't all horrible Nazis or whatever. I was a good person, but I belonged to a unit that was doing indiscriminate killing, totally immoral activities. If somebody moved, shoot it. I just felt I'd been part of a war crime. I didn't know how to live with it. When I got out of the army, or even when I was in the army, I could go to work because I pulled on the veneer. Okay, I'm a soldier, put on the uniform, nothing worries me. When I was a civilian, I went to work, same thing, put on this veneer, civilian, never talk about the military. I hear you in the army, yeah. Where were you, Vietnam? Yeah, what was it like? Okay, that was it. End of conversation, move on. Yep. I felt I was part of, a, of an ugly incident, the whole thing being an incident, and I couldn't get that out of my mind. So when I was at work, I could put on the veneer, and I was very good at my work. I was outstanding at my work. When I went home, I was terrible because there was the real me. When you walk into your home with your four kids and your wife, you've got nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. What do you go on to do in your post-military career, John? The first thing I did was go and work for the public sector, which was good because it gave me an idea of how the discipline of civilian living. I know the first thing I did was go to university, did a degree in economics. Then I worked for the federal government, then the state government, and then I realised there was such incompetence, not only in the public sector but in the, in the consultants who went to sort out the public sector. So I set myself up as a consultant and did very well. And the reason I did well was because I didn't take any bullshit that people would tell me something, I'd say, no, that's not true, that's not what I see, instead of saying, oh, is that right? You've never been a man to take bullshit, John. That's very evident from your story today. Yeah, yeah, and, and someone would be misbehaving you know, as sort of a senior person in a, in a government department, and the word had got around, if John White asks you out for a cup of coffee, don't go. <laughs> so I would say to him, look, let's go and get a cup of coffee. <laughs> I remember one guy saying, oh, shit. I said, yeah, come on, we're going to get a cup of coffee. I was able to talk to them by saying, I will not be saying this to anybody else, you have my word. And one of the things that was absolutely essential for me to be successful is I kept my word. I will not be saying this to anyone else, but you are a significant part of the problem and you're doing this, this, this and this. If you want this problem fixed, you have to make some changes. Okay, well, let's finish our coffee. I hope we don't have to talk again. And that would be the end of that. In 2019, John, 51 years after that life-changing battle, you were awarded the Distinguished Service Cross by the Governor-General, David Hurley. Do you know how that came about How and how did it feel, I guess, to have that well-deserved, if not well-overdue, recognition over five decades? Yeah. I told you I did. I've never spoken to anyone about it. This is unusual and I do a couple of other things for, for veterans, but I, you can see how you know, it does upset me. Probably about 10 or 15 years ago, my brothers and our wives and I had dinner. One of my brothers said, yeah, you never told us about Vietnam. I said, no. They all said, I'd like to hear it. I said, no, you wouldn't. They said, well, we need to decide that, not you. So I told them. 
telling what I've told you. One of my brothers is a lawyer, and he said, oh, this, you know, this, is, this is ridiculous. You should have got something for it. And I said, I'm not interested. I, am not in, I, don't, I want to be part of this game because I was also awarded two silver stars, one from the Marines, one from the Army, both of which were subversive. They visited me out at my force and said, you may have left the bodies of Marines behind, which we never do, but you got 30 Marines out of there who would have died if you hadn't been there. No one seemed to care whether the Norgs were saved or not. My lawyer brother said, we've got to get out, do something about this, and he wrote to the Medals and Tribunal, Medals Tribunal, whatever. Nine years later, that's how long it took, he just kept hounding him, hounding him, saying, yeah, you haven't received, it's been a year now, what are you doing about it? Nine years later, they held a tribunal hearing and they decided to give me that. I couldn't care less about that. One of the things I do do is I have two silver stars which are not authorised because if you're given them by an American, you're meant to come back and ask permission to wear them. And I refuse to do that. Uh, they can get stuffed. I'm not going to have some, some clerk tell me what I can and cannot wear. But I do wear one of them against that understanding because that's for the norms. So I feel someone's got to remember, you know, remember them somewhere. Someone has to. Well, John, you mentioned just then that you don't talk about this very often, and I am very grateful that you chose to speak with me today about this. You've made your thoughts and feelings, I guess, on it all quite clear as we've spoken, but how do you reflect on your time in the Army today? What's the takeaway or lesson you want someone listening to our conversation to hmm. take from this? The first part of it is very positive. My years at Duntroon, my years as a subaltern in the Army, my time in Malacca, where I just with my wife. Had, I had a job that didn't require very much of me. That was all positive, and I enjoyed it. What wasn't positive, and the most positive thing of all of that, was the people I met. There's no doubt in my mind that the armed forces, if you took a, a, sort of a slice of the armed forces, you'd end up with good people. And if people were being recruited by me and they had been in the armed forces, they got a running start. The downside is the lack of honour by some people. And it seems to me quite often that the higher you go, the more likely you are to break honour. I have a bit of connection with the military at the moment. They're all good guys. But sooner or later I'm going to run into somebody who got there for the wrong reasons and I know that I'll walk away from him. Well, John, it struck me in our conversation today that you are a very good person, a very honourable person, and you did exceptionally brave and honourable things in your service in Vietnam. And although I know you don't care about the medal so much, it is, I'm glad that you have been recognised for your personal courage and exceptional leadership because you deserve to be. And it's obviously great that you're with us today to keep alive the memories of those who died, especially the Nung and those often overlooked yeah. in this. It's wrong that your actions weren't recognised. It's wrong what you went through there. You have been recognised. And today our listeners can also hear and appreciate your story and those you're speaking on behalf of as well. Thank you for your service, John, and for speaking with me today. Thank you. And one thing to close with, the Americans offered me that medal, those medals one day after the battle. I got the medal from the Australians 70 years after, 60 years. That's heinous. It's wrong. It certainly is. I couldn't agree more. That's it. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. We have so many more fascinating veteran conversations to come this season. Subscribe to us in your podcast app or on YouTube to never miss an episode. We've interviewed a number of other Vietnam veterans on this podcast. You can find the full list of them on the episodes page of our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com, for other conversations with former AATTV veterans in Season 1. Listen to Thomas Kay's interview in Number 15, Adrian Clooney's Ross. The first group that went to Vietnam was a group of 30. When we got there, we were split up into various locations and we were part of American advisory units. And in season six, listen to Angus Horden's conversation in number 135, Donald McDowell. 60 people versus eight makes for exciting firefights. My thanks go to Ryan Shaw, 
and Gaythorn RSL for providing us with the interview location. Follow this podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at LOTL Pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thank you for listening, and lest we forget.